I'm Gabe with Mike. We're going to be talking about 007. I think it's about time. I know we were supposed to do some Star Trek thing, but I really wanted to talk about 007 before that because I know the whole Daniel Craig saga just ended. How did you feel about that? I think that it uh, completed it or its own arc. It set out to do what it was going to do. It was kind of going to be a contained space. You know, it's like... Uh, Batman has lived on forever, you know, since the 40s and stuff like that. But say the Chris uh, Nolan trilogy was just that, a trilogy in its own contained space. Uh, definitely shouldn't and won't mean the end of James Bond. Even at the end of the last flick, it said uh, he will return. Just so, like Batman, I, I guess. Yeah. Huh? yeah, yeah. I love Batman Rises, or <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises. Yep, it definitely... Uh, Put him up against the one villain who was actually able to mess it up a bit and see how he got out of it. In true Chris Nolan style, left the ending a bit ambiguous, and yeah, there we are. Always leave the audience wondering. Well, I've never met anyone that's actually into Bond as much as you. Is there a name for <laughs> James Bond fanboys? I like Bondos. Uh, <laughs> Bondos. Bond. Bond bitches, uh, you know, I have absolutely no idea. I don't think we have a particular, you know, it's like uh, the whole women love him, men want to be him, but women don't want men who are like him, so. <laughs> you know, I bet you anything I, I don't is, know if there's a particular. <laughs> I, I bet there is a name for for the Bond fanboys. Hold on, you like this. If there now. is, I actually don't know what it is. You'd be educating me. Bondo hours bo later. Bondo file. A Bondo file. All right. And just the James Bond fandom, the Bond community. It's an international and informal community drawn together by Ian Fleming's James Bond series. That that's there pretty. That's pretty fucking boring. There you go, guys. You're either in or out. I mean, I, I think it should be called Bondos. Bondos, and then when they have a little or, convention, it's like, that yeah, be we're for gonna, the uh, Latin community. They do. We're gonna go for some fucking bondage today, dude. Just nothing but bondage. straight up bondage all day. Was there anything like Bond before that? How big was the whole spy fiction? Do you know anything about that? Because I would say that he his genre kind of stemmed from old radio serials. To tell you the truth, I couldn't... I mean, and before that, books. So, I mean, the spy novel is probably absolutely nothing new. And I have absolutely no idea where it started. But I think a lot of these kind of movies came from certain serials, either detective or uh, these kinds of things. I mean, Bond himself was kind of a product of... I wouldn't say... It started necessarily exactly with the Cold War, even though that's where he's most thought of. But even the some of the earliest Bond films and stories, uh, from Russia with Love being a great example, you know, is always meant on bent on the instability of the world nations. As old as there have been spies, there have been spy stories. Um, I think it might have started with World War Two, World War Two, because. Ian Fleming was in World War Two, yeah, and he commanded a unit that did rec uh, recon and stealth missions and shit like that. There you go. That's pretty cool. 
That would suit the, the, the timeline pretty correctly. And, and speaking of stealth and all that, we got to jump to the 90s. Well, even 80s. Okay, so what came first for you, Bond or Metal Gear? Oh, Bond. Uh, I mean, the first movie I ever remember watching in my entire life was probably Forbidden Planet. God knows we've covered that. And uh, the second thing that I remember was uh, the first Bond movie that came on television and Dad recorded and always watched until the magnetism ran out and that uh, VCR kind of looked like squiggle porn by the time he was done with it. But it was uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, and that was my introduction to anything Bond. How did you feel the first time you played Metal Gear Solid and the first time you ever did the whole tuxedo? I was going to call him Bond with Snake at the beginning with the title comes up Metal Gear Solid and he's standing there wearing a tuxedo. Very tongue in cheek. Actually, not like, even that. It was really on the nose. Like, were you happy or were you like, okay, this is bullshit or this is lame? I was thoroughly happy because, you know, here's uh, it, it almost gave me an idea of what I was going to be in for because that told me right off the bat that the creator, Hideo Kojima, loved that kind of genre, pointed it out by making a Bond reference. So I kind of had an idea what I was in for, and I got excited. I hope that it wasn't going to be just one reference after another and its own thing, but it definitely gave me an idea. I guess, I guess you can say it was a great tribute or like a nod to yeah. Ian Fleming. Absolutely. Without blatantly ripping anything. Which, which also... um the soundtrack to Sons of Liberty. I forgot the name of the composer, but he also composed the soundtrack to Spy Games with Robert Redford and Brad Pitt in like 2002, 2003. Okay. One of those. Dude, I loved the intro to uh, Sons of Liberty. It was very movie-like. The, the music, oh man, it was so badass. That's one of my favorite video game intros of all time. Yeah, right. you could imagine a pre-Bond movie sequence starting out in a similar way. You know, it's dark and stormy, he parachutes in, he's on a ship, things go crazy, roll credits. And then it starts. Well, It, it kind of had that formula. Well, speaking of um, inspirations from Bond, do you think Tom Clancy, and you know, this is me asking you knowing you might not even fucking know the answer, but do you think Tom Clancy was at all inspired by Ian Fleming? There, there was this thing that a lot of people believe for the longest time, and they probably still do. And, you know, even when I was looking shit up for for this, you know, I, I I saw Ian Fleming's history. I was like, you know, that sounds a lot like Tom Clancy. And I looked up to see if Tom Clancy's past is well, what people say it is, and why why his books are so good. And it turns out he's never in the CIA. That's one of the things I heard the most. Like, yo, he's an ex CIA agent. Where he just we used to work for the Central Intelligence Agency, he never was there. I think he he tried to join the, the the military, so he wrote all his books. And they had crazy details in them about the CIA and the government. But as I said, it turns out he was never in the CIA. Then okay, it said well he was in the military, but that's sort of not true, but kind of is. You see, he joined the army, but he was ineligible because of nearsightedness. Is that really a crazy thing? Nearsightedness? Couldn't tell you. I passed mine. I don't know what they can fail you for. And I'm sure it changes with time and circumstances. Apparently, he used a lot of open and unclassified documents. 
it's something we all have access to, but don't actually give a shit enough to look it up for ourselves. I guess the dude was just badass at doing research, and he also had, apparently, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but apparently he had some contacts in the military, which helped a lot, and that he had some ghostwriters. And his first novel was The Hunt for Red October. Which I was going to say, would you pin Clancy as kind of an analyst? Well, I've never, okay, here's the thing, because I know you love The Hunt for Red October. Mm -hmm. I've never read it, but I've seen the movie, and I love the fucking movie. Yeah. And I don't know if it's true. I I did not look this up, but apparently the book was not selling that well until Reagan said, oh, yeah, I saw, oh, I read the book, and I thought it was great. And it started selling like crazy from there. That's how Tom Tom Clancy got his big break. This book alone might have worked out for the U.S. government in recruiting the same way Top Gun worked out for the Air Force. I read a story, uh, you know, about some guy on Quora. This guy read The Hunt for Red October in 1984, which is when it came out. He was still in high school. The dude was hooked on the book. He loved every page. He went to the launch of the USS Minneapolis St. Paul. Even though he already decided to become a submarine officer, the book pushed him even further. It made him more dedicated to this, you know, this this thing he said he wants to be. The, the book just pushed him even further. So years later, after completing all the shit you have to do just to get in, like nuclear power school, submarine school, commissioning program, basic course, he, he went to his ship, a submarine. He said it was a 637 attack submarine. It's what he wanted. And uh, that class ship was doing spec op stuff and the ship had, dude, it had so many damn features. Uh, I'm like, okay, he was talking about the armor and all this shit. I'm like, dude, you know what? That That's just, that shit's just too much for me, man. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it made no sense. I don't know shit about submarines, but according to him, it's the ship he wanted to be in if war broke out with Russia in the 80s. One day, one of the sailors... Non-qual? What's non-qual? That's hard to remember. I think it's short for non-qualification. Non-qualified. Okay, Okay. Um, and also for context, Mr. Mike here was in the Navy, so that's why I also asked. But yeah. Short and sweet. This is a non-qual sailor. Okay, well, one day, one of the sailors, a non-qual sailor, was reading The Hunt for Red October. So this guy, he asked him, like, hey, you know, is 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 that book the reason for you wanting to become a sailor. And he said, yes. And that sailor asked him, you know, what, what do you think about the book? And this guy told him it's a great book and all, but Tom Clancy, he sells insurance. So he then goes on to say a lot of what Tom Clancy was writing about was wrong. Apparently Tom Clancy looks into a lot of, uh, weapons that are being developed shit that maybe only military guys give a shit about future weapons and stuff like that. And he puts him into his book because um, I know Ghost Recon. I never read the book. Oh, no, no. It's not even a book. It's a game. They just put the Tom Clancy name on it. Uh, Ghost Recon takes place. I think uh, I think I think the game came out in like the 99, maybe 2000, maybe 2001. The story in the game takes place in like 2020 something. So in the future and, you know, an excuse to write about future weapons or whatever. But then again, he didn't write the story for the game. So this is why I bring Tom Tom Clancy up, because Bond started in 1952. That's when he wrote Casino Royale. Did you ever read Casino Royale? 
A long time ago, yes. It's actually fairly short. Most of his books were considered fairly short, almost short stories, if I remember correctly. Unless I read something abridged, it it wasn't like full-on War and Peace. A lot of the stuff about Ian Fleming that I looked up, it it was pretty much a self-insert, which, of course, isn't surprising. A lot of authors do that. And it was a self-insert of who he wanted to be with some actual background. You know, because he was in World War II. He was in naval intelligence. He knew hand-to-hand combat. He had weapons training. He was in command of a unit. And like I said, they did covert missions and recon missions and stealth and stuff like that. And as for Bond himself, it's something you've told me before. Fleming made him bland. And I, I remember you telling me the dude is pretty much cold. He just lives to do the job. And when he's not doing the job, he's just, again, for what I remember what you told me, he just sits in an empty room with a chair and a little table next to him with a bottle of vodka, I think, and a gun with the idea of getting so drunk for him to get the balls to just fucking kill himself because he hates life. Pretty much. I mean, if we're going to profile the character of James Bond, first off, I hope that that kind of profile doesn't really step over into Fleming himself. The way I kind of contrast Tom Clancy is a guy a little bit more looking in. That's probably why his books are so detail-oriented, almost like a Michael Crichton as well, where he can take 20 pages to describe, you know, a book on the table kind of thing. Whereas Ian Fleming saved a lot of time, his novels are shorter, but he comes from the view of he was there. So he's more of like, this was like the ideal way that I would like these things to play out. It was very romanticized. Um, So it's kind of coming from two different perspectives. Both people are kind of writing about espionage in some form or another, but to read the different styles of the authors from one that was there to one that just kind of like had the right connections and was there. One, you know, wanted to just was a lot more descriptive where the other one was like, as the author, I would think myself, well, I already know this shit, so I'm just going to write more about the happenings, you know, the character development and things like that. Because when Hunt for Rot, Red October came out, uh, you knew very little about Jack Ryan besides the conversation that him and uh, the Admiral, played by James Earl Jones, had. You know, you know, he had a family. His wife was Beverly Crusher. He had a daughter, and, you know, he didn't get a lot of sleep. He stressed. He was injured in battle, and... That's why he kind of took a desk job instead. He wanted to be more out in the field, but couldn't. And I wonder if that kind of resembles Tom Clancy himself. He wanted to be more of the action, but couldn't. And so that's kind of how he wrote his character. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, cause... That's kind of the way I look at it. Well, because like Bond sounds like an anti-hero, which I'm, you know, I mean, he is. You know, like the Punisher, who also does good things. But he's cold. He's a cold person. He seems to not have any feelings for anyone. Shows no emotion. He's just a killing machine. But unlike the Punisher, who is his own boss, Bond feels more like a tool or a weapon for the British government. Would that be right to say? Yeah, he is. Uh, And it's that way for a reason. If we're going to look up the definition of anti-hero, the very first thing that pops into my head is a person that does bad things for the right reason. Uh, I don't care if it's uh, Riddick and Pitch Black or or any of these other characters. And Bond definitely follows into that. See, he he was orphaned. Uh, I know that there's been discussion on whether his 
parents just died or were actually eliminated somehow by the government, but regardless, very young age, he was basically adopted by the government. So he grows up with indoctrination and little else. He doesn't really understand the outside world way of doing things. He doesn't really understand the idea. You know, most people are like, you grow up, you meet a girl, white picket fence, family, kids, stuff like that. But when you're trained at a young age by the government, like, this is how you can use I, I, women to get what you want or something. He has a very warped perspective of how life is played out, and therefore he wrestles with it a lot. I think the, uh, the best thing to say would be programmed. You, would you say Bond yeah. is programmed? Yeah. And, and also, the whole thing I was, I was going to ask later, like, why does he sleep with so many women and all this shit? And it's, oh, and you just said it right there. He's just using him to get information. Just the way mm -hmm. the way um, the lady did on Munich slept with um, with one of the uh, Jewish agents just to kill him in his sleep or while they're having sex. It's like, oh, okay. In, in this line of work, I guess sex is a fucking big weapon. Mm-hmm. And psychological um, manipulation of the enemy has always been a part of espionage. That's just one aspect of it. I was just going to say, now usually Bond is playing a game with an equal. Like, he doesn't usually like to take advantage of, like, a bystander woman, but... If a woman is directly connected to his end goal, like in uh, uh, like, uh, Casino Royale when he was trying to find Mads Mikkelsen's character, but there's this bad guy there, he seduces his wife to get the goods on his husband. You know, there is usually always a purpose. A lot of people think of Bond, they think just womanizer, but no, he was, he, he was calculated. You know, every now and then, yeah, did he like to have a fun time with a woman that actually liked him? Yeah, that's cool. But yeah, like that on, he really um, sets his sight on it was for a reason. Yeah, like on License to Kill, um, Pam, they, he just met her. They get into a big fight in a bar. They, they save each other's lives. They escape on a boat. And then maybe not even 10 minutes later, they're fucking on the boat in the middle of the ocean. They, they just fucking met. I mean, I mean, I, I guess that's what it's a like being a spy. There's like a term for that. It's part of a combat high, you know. Uh, what was it, Demolition Man? When uh, Huxley's character was like, "There's a correlated thing between like violence and sex and stuff like that." So I want to have sex with you. Now that's going to the extreme, but there is something about the uh, adrenaline coming off the adrenaline, the endorphin rush, and stuff like that. I couldn't rule out things like that happening, you know, combine that with a little will we live to see tomorrow kind of mentality. But, yeah, it's definitely exaggerated in in the movies. I guess that's why sex and violence always go together whenever it's mentioned on TV or also um, would you I'm not saying they, they were inspired by Fleming, but do you think Bioware took inspiration to create Commander Shepard? Because it sounds like Bond would do anything to get the job done, and that's what Commander Shepard does. Does anything yes, to get the would job you done. Compare, would you compare the backgrounds? Was she basically raised by the system? Uh, there, there, do we know enough about her background to be able to say that? He or she's parents were military, and pretty much grew up military. I mean, that's all I can say. 
Okay. But they they did reach the rank of N7, which only the most dedicated can get to. And remember, N7 is a rank that's not earned, it's given. So you take your field tests, but once you get to N6, N7 just comes along and it's not something given to you. It's oh shit, I'm on a mission. Um fuck. I either save my save my fucking team or get the job done and, and sacrifice my team or sacrifice all these people to get the job done. You got the job done. A bunch of people died. You had to spill some blood. That's how you get N7. Would Bond do that? Yes. In fact, uh, wasn't that uh, kind of how a person could get a double O, uh, according to the Daniel Craig Casino Royale? Now, they'd simplify it into getting your first kill, but to get that point, th- there's a difference between combat... When you're in a combat scenario, uh, in, in a war battle setting, you know, you're sitting there throwing bullets or missiles at, at basically whoever is wearing the correct uniform. To contrast, to single out a target, hunt them down, face them, and, and, and assassinate, to become an assassin, hits you probably a little bit differently. And, and a person who can kill basically in cold blood like i said not necessarily in a combat setting requires a separate kind of you know mental capacity so i would say that there's a difference you know it actually took me by surprise because all my life whenever i think of spies i think stealing stealing government secrets from other governments um stealth that's the very definition of the term espionage yeah, but then when you told me that Bond's an assassin, I'm like, oh shit. It's like, okay, that that's how my childhood dies. <laughs> He's not there to steal <laughs> secrets. He's there to assassinate people. Like, oh man. Yeah, that that that's what I was like, oh shit, he's an assassin. I've been rooting for well, an at assassin the end of this the whole day, time. Yeah, I mean, and that there brings up anti hero, you know, doing the wrong things for the right reason. Typically, uh, you know, in this case, and I don't know how it really is in real world or Cold War espionage back in the day, but the spy's basically job is to get information of some sort, get a confirmation of something. It's usually to get, but it is not uncommon that an infiltrator would be there to terminate a specific high-value target of some sort either. Because well, a person that's capable of one doing one thing would probably be very handy being able to pull a trigger at the same time. Okay, well, how about this? There's people who are willing to spill some blood to get the job done for awesome and be heroic. But just just that part alone about Bond being an alcoholic and suicidal made me think of another character. And that is Martin Riggs, played by Mel Gibson on Lethal Weapon. He... His wife died, died in a car accident, and, you know, spoilers, we later find out she was murdered because he was getting close to the enemy in investigation, and they killed her to throw him off, and Lethal Weapon 1, we see he's a great cop. He's great at busting drug dealers, but whenever one of the drug dealers takes him hostage, he just doesn't shut the fuck up. He keeps running his mouth knowing the drug dealer might kill him, but he doesn't care. He wants the drug dealer to kill him. To the point where it pisses him off that he just turns around and beats the shit out of the drug dealer because he won't kill him. And later on, like we, we see how how good of a cop he is. And later on in the movie, we see him alone in his trailer where he lives by the beach, just 
watching TV, but he's really just drinking liquor, drunk, looking at a picture of his wife with his gun right next to him, which he stated he has a special bullet for the occasion, which is a hollow point to make sure he gets the job done. And he puts the gun to his mouth. He he pulls it out. He starts crying, but he's suicidal. When I was looking all this stuff up and I remember what you told me about you know, Bond is, is like that. I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't want to say Bond inspired everything, but man, Bond Bond's roots just extend out somewhere or all over the fucking place to even sci-fi. Like I said, with Mass Effect, that even even now I can't watch Lethal Weapon without thinking about James Bond in a way. You bring up a good point that there seems to be a certain path that people are on in life in order to be able to do these kinds of jobs and the psychological effect that it has. To turn it back to Metal Gear for just a moment, there's an overarching storyline about how to create this perfect soldier, and in order to do so, you have to put them under the same circumstances. You know, The whole idea behind Raiden was to replicate what happened to Snake in order to create somebody that would be like Snake. So you have somebody that has that starts off with nothing to lose, has suffered a great loss, and is capable of getting the job done because what the hell else does he have? He has no sense of self-preservation, really, because he has nothing to live for. It's actually his depression or suicidal tendencies. He's definitely not afraid to die, and that makes him extremely effective. Speaking of Raiden... Would you consider him to be Metal Gear's George Lazenby? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't know if I would go that far, because he's a different character with a different background who finds out that he does have things to lose, and that changes his course. You know, he finds out out that, you know, know, his woman is still around, that he has a a daughter or son, I can't remember which at the moment, but... That kind of changes his motivations quite a bit and takes him away from the kind of path that Snake would go. Granted, he has his own tragedies and, and, and a very distorted future, but he's definitely not Snake. <sighs> Yet Lazenby was supposed to be, you know, Lazenby is still the character of Bond, like supposed to be the same character, not just somebody else named James Bond. From here, you know, spe- speaking of characters we have to talk about just james bond himself so james bond you know i I looked up a bunch of shit today on bond and a lot of the stuff i feel like you told me about him already like the way ian fleming imagined him he had scars on his face he was not a handsome guy he was just you know you're you're whatever he was the average man yeah and so, so here's the thing I, I, I later find out, found out, which we're going to jump into a little bit later on, because I was going to ask you, was that a movie thing? But no, it started before the movies. I will, I will bring that up later. But I also want to bring in, which I brought up many times, John Constantine in the comics. No, the Hellblazer comics. He was not a handsome dude. He's just some piece of shit looking guy. But when we got the movie Constantine, we got Keanu Reeves. Which looks nothing like John Constantine. Personally, I would have chosen Guy Pierce to play John Constantine in the movie. Not saying that he's handsome or, you know, it's just, I, just to me, I think. Or ugly. Yeah, just to me, I think Guy Pierce would be a perfect John Constantine in a movie. And Fleming used 
Hoagy Carmichael as inspiration for Bond's looks, which is said in Casino Royale. I think it's said in Casino Royale. What's her name? Vesper Lind? Mm-hmm. Vesper Lind says, reminds me of Hoagy Carmichael, but there is something cold and ruthless. And in Moonraker, Gala Brand says, certainly good looking, rather like Hoagy Carmichael. He just really wants to <laughs> tell us, no, yeah, this guy looks like Hoagy Carmichael. But she says, certainly good looking, rather like Hoagy Carmichael in a way. The black hair is falling down over the right eyebrow. Fucking emo. Much the same bones. But there is something a bit cruel in the mouth and the eyes are cold. I, I like I like this description of him, man. He, he's, he sounds fucking ruthless and cold. I mean, yeah, I, I got the fucking idea now. But I like this. I like this character. And I, it's a lot easier to paint a picture of a perfect character through words and description than it perhaps is to find an actor for the build. The movies have to have an actor. Actors are, tra- you know leading men or whatever kind of fit a certain form in movies uh, more often than not. So I guess that's how they do that is because the draw is more from the visual where the book can be a little bit more whatever you want. Yeah, because I've not seen any of the Bond Connery films. So the whole point of this episode is talk about the Bond character history. I've learned a lot about the books without reading them. And honestly, I want to read the books more than watch the movies now. Because it sounds a lot like a character I would like. Because a lot of my yeah. favorite characters in comic books are anti-heroes. Like, my favorite comic book characters of all time, John Constantine, Frank Castle, Al Simmons. None of them, none of them are handsome. One of them's burnt. You can't, unrecognizable. The other one's just your average looking marine. And the other one's just your average con artist. And... Bond sounds like he would fit there. So I, I really want to start picking up uh, the books, though I still want to watch the movies. But man, the, we'll get into we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by stories featuring an, an average person in extraordinary circumstances. Besides him. OK, because we're going to get into more characteristics, uh, characteristics about Bond, because we know he's a gambler. Would you say he's a gambling addict? Because we know he's an alcoholic. So, well, that fits right there into nothing to lose also. Okay, so we can call him a gambling addict, an alcoholic, and he loves women. But here's the thing. Does he love women, or is it part of the job? Sleeping with him for information. Is that to be answered now? Hmm. I mean, sure, why not? Or are we, we moving into something? Well, I guess answer it, because every time people think of Bond, those things always come up. Gambler, loves to drink, loves women. but. Does he love women? Or is it, as he said earlier, he sleeps with them as a strategy to get closer to the enemy or information? The answer in reality is both. Uh, and it's not that he just loves women in general. He, it's the government programming and indoctrination that we said that allowed him to use women uh, to think of them as a provocatrix. Whereas Bond, who said it himself, when he thinks of a spy, he uses the term provocateur uh, in one of Daniel Craig's movies. So he sees women as the threat like on an opposite side of the spectrum. When he's on mission, it's about a game. Yet there is a, a, a housekeeper, a maid of James Bond, that is never talked about in the movies, but is talked about in novel form. Uh, the one 
woman he does kind of love like mother slash sister. He does have a woman with no sexual history or, or attraction or anything. This is like his closest family, and yes, he loves her dearly. Uh, I, I, James Bond would meet a woman on mission and end up genuinely falling in love with her and ended up getting married. That I, being said, it's kind of different when he does mission versus when he's thinking of himself. Well, I remember you telling me about this woman. Is she what was supposed to, or what turned into Money Penny in the movies, or was Money Penny also into books? Couldn't tell you. Hmm. Well, let's see. Wait. Hold on. Also, um, if you hear any little popping sounds when Mike's talking, it's just some weird audio thing happening on his side, and there's nothing he can do to fix it. So, sorry in advance. But I tried. But we're moving on. So here's another thing. I another thing I found out about Bond that also kind of surprised me. He uses drugs. I I I didn't see that coming, man. Well, it's not just limited to you know chemical addition, you know pain. He he's been injured a lot. He's gotten into you know the scars on his face, bullet holes, everything else. I'm sure he's been on a steady diet uh, of painkillers and strong medicines like that. I find it very easy to believe that he could have uh, formed an addiction, alcoholism, gambling, drugs. I mean, they all kind of form under similar things. <laughs> Yeah, I I was pretty surprised that he's a he's a drug user, and I was like, holy shit! Dun, dun, dun. But is he a junkie? Is he addicted? Or he's addicted? Man. I wouldn't call him a junkie. I mean, anything to numb the pain. But where it's first a physical pain thing, a person quickly figures out that it, you know can kind of numb you emotionally as well, which is why a lot of other people would use drugs. It is. It fits the profile. Yeah, that's well, because <laughs> I was gonna ask also. Um, do you know if that was ever brought up in the movies? Like, yeah, Bond uses drugs. Are you ever seeing just there no. like shooting up? Or something? That would have been too controversial for for those kinds of films, anyways. And it wasn't necessary to the plot. You just it's known that he has problems with addiction, you know. But you, it doesn't even until Daniel Craig, you didn't really see the James Bond character getting sloshed too much either. You just knew he was a fan of the martini made very badly. But other than that, you know, it doesn't get just enough to let you know it's there, but not really make that a focal point of the movie, probably because it would have made audience goers a little bit self-conscious, like we're rooting for the drug addict or, you know... Yeah, because I was going to be like, hey, dude, when I start watching these movies, I'm going to start looking out if, he, if there's ever a moment where he's got the shakes. Oh, he needs his fix or some shit. After doing all this, <laughs> dude, I, again, I looked up a bunch of shit on Bond today. Throw him in there. It, it's obvious Fleming wanted Bond to be, I guess, boring. A, a boring man who is a killing machine. He And I guess he also wanted him to have a boring name. I, I guess James Bond sounds boring. Because yeah. he named him after an author who wrote books about birds. <laughs> they and wanted him to be very anonymous. And I think that that's an ideal format for any spy. I mean, a person who could blend in, disappear, be anyone or no one. Well, he's not lavish. He's not. To me, James Bond doesn't sound boring. I mean, James does, but Bond? Uh, I don't know. I've never met anyone with the last name Bond or her. I don't even think I've heard any of uh, 
even celebrities with the last name Bond. That's a pretty unique name. Except for Samantha. I've never heard of Samantha Bonds Bond. in one movie. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I mean, between James Bond and the actress Samantha Bond, but yeah. Well, we're going to get to the books. Because the first Bond book, which was Casino Royale, again, if I get anything wrong, I apologize, but dude, there's so much information, and it's like a a yarn ball of info. It's crazy. So the first Bond book was, was released in 1953, and Ian Fleming died on August 12th, 1964. Casino Royale was actually published, or not published, but released on April 13th, 1953. Fleming wrote, for what I remember, 13 Bond books with some collections. Sounds about right. And the the collections, you know, they had a bunch of Bond stories. And one of them was called For Your Eyes Only, which had a short story from A View to a Kill and Quantum of Solace. And then we also got Octopussy and The Living Daylights, which had stories like Octopussy, The Living Daylights, Double Seven in New York. <laughs> That just that sounds that sounds like Muppets take Manhattan or some shit or Jason takes Manhattan. It does. I would not have been excited to just turn those pages. Crocodile Dundee in New York. Yeah, exactly. Like that's and, the kind of the impression that I get. And this is where I'm going to get into the uh, the movies. Just just to left list off what was at the time because we know there's way more than this. But as for the Bond novel, uh, Bond novels by Fleming. They were, one, Casino Royale, 1953, Live and Let Die, 1954, Moonraker, 1955, Diamonds Are Forever, 1956, and From Russia With Love, 1957, Doctor No, 1958, Goldfinger, 1959, For Your Eyes Only, which is a collection, 1959, Thunderball, 1961, The Spy Who Loved Me, 1962, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, 1963. You Only Live Twice, 1964. The Man with the Golden Gun, 1965. And Octopussy in the Living Daylights, which is a collection, 1966. Dude, millions and millions of copies were sold, man. Like, double-digit millions. This dude, just looking at the years that these books came out, he was pumping these out, man. This dude was a machine for writing. Then again, those were boring times, right? No internet, no video games. Like, what else are you going to do? Just just write books? Televisions were starting to make their way into color. Well, speaking of television, this is where we uh, start heading into the film and TV era, which is the next stop, uh, Stepford Bond. And because in the 1950s, there was a show on CBS called Climax. And it, it was an anthology series. It aired from 1954 to 1958. The show was hosted by William L- um, L- Lundigan. I don't even know what I'm saying saying that right. And it was later hosted by Mary Costa. It lasted, you know, it's like it lasted for four seasons. It had 166 episodes. But I think the only one anyone really cares about was season one, because on October 21st, 1954, the third episode in the season was Casino Royale, and it, it was a 50 long minute episode. It was written by um, Anthony Ellis and Charles Bennett and directed by William H. Brown, uh, Brown Jr. This here had Barry Nelson as James Bond. Now, this is where you're going to have to help me. Peter Lorre as, what's the name of the Bond villain? Casino Royale. Le Chief. Is that what it is? Le Chief? Yes. All right, so it was Peter Lorre as Le Chief, 
And then there was Linda Christian as Valerie Mathis, who was a uh, composite character of Vesper Lind and Renee Mathis. These actors also came out on a, like different episodes for the uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour show. And there were other actors on there as uh, Michael, Michael Pate as Clarence Leiter. Eugene Borden as Chef de Partie? Partiet? Dude, I know that's, that's got to be a French thing. Did Casino Royale take place in France? Where did Casino Royale take place in? Did he sound like a... As with, as with most Bond films that take place in multiple locations, what I'm trying to verify is the location of the actual hotel. Ah, okay. CBS paid Fleming $1,000 to adapt Casino Royale. And that's actually, and as of 2021, that was $10,000. And Bond was a hardcore Americanized for this show. He was an American agent working for the Combined Intelligence, supported by Clarence Leiter, who was a British agent. And this is from Wikipedia. Clarence Leiter was an agent for Station S, while being a uh, combination of Felix Leiter and Rene Mathis, the name Mathis and his association with the Jesus, dude, I don't know what that word is. How about if I spell it for you guys and you tell me? D-E-U-X-I-E-M-E. It's obviously Dem- French. Demu? Demu? Demu. Okay, yeah. well, his association with Demu Bureau, or Demu Bureau, was given to the leading lady who is named Valerie Mathis instead of Vesper Lind. In this, in this uh, fucking episode... He was called Jimmy Bond. How do you guys feel about that? He's been referred to that before, uh, along other things, uh, especially in the Pierce Brosnan films. There's that one guy, yo, Jimbo, Jimmy. Ah, okay. Well, because um, I was about to say, apparently he he is also referred to as Jimmy Bond in the American Prince of the book. So, yeah. But also, uh, the episode was not well received and was forgotten for a long time. They, they, they uh, apparently, as, as someone said, they humanized the character and was not cold or ruthless. He was a pussy, in other words. From Wiki, four years after the production of Casino Royale, CBS invited Fleming to write 32 episodes over a two year period for a TV show based on Bond. Fleming was like, yeah, fuck it, I'll do it. And he, he wrote outlines for the series. But nothing ever happened with the idea, so he adapted three of the outlines into short stories and released for your eyes only. And and also, the Casino Royale episode was adapted before the formation of Eon Productions. Are you familiar with Eon Productions? Am I even saying that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Eon is the British film production company that primarily produces Bond films, in case nobody knew. I know, obviously, Mike knows. So, this is where my history's starts getting fucked up because I was looking up a bunch of different references. In 1961, Harry Saltzman purchased the film rights to the remaining Bond novels for 50000 You know, everything after Casino Royale. Who then was approached by Albert R. Broccoli. Yeah, the dude's name, his last name is Broccoli. Together they formed Eon Productions in 1962. They would pitch the Bond movie to studios, but nobody wanted to back it up. It was too British for the American audience. And finally, they got to United Artists. They they were like, cool, you know, we'll, we'll join you guys. So they signed up for a deal. And Saltzman and Broccoli wanted an unknown actor. And together, they chose Sean Connery. Now, this is the funny part. United Artists and Fleming did not like Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, to address the elephant in the room, you you have a British secret agent who lacks the British. Yeah. I, I think that that would have turned a couple of heads right off the bat. You're, you're, you're hiring a Scottish actor for this part. John, what do you think? Would you be unhappy with that? Then again, he was a known known too. So it's, it's yeah. a big gamble already. Yeah, I, I probably would have been odd about that, you know, considering he wasn't popular yet. And you really can tell he's not British or Spanish. Especially oh, yeah. when part of their chief problem of selling it was the idea that the show was too British, but yet they hire a non-British actor. Or, or Egyptian. John, J- what, John, what John's referencing is a Highlander where he was... Oh. <laughs> where, where he was... They approached him to play Connor, the Scottish, but he was like, no. Instead, I want to play the Spanish guy who's actually Egyptian. And instead, they were like, well, shit. Connery wants to play the uh, the Spanish guy. All right, cool. Who who are we going to get to play the Scottish guy? Um, let's get a French guy. And they got an American to play a uh, what was it, Kurgan? Oh, that was Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown. No, oh, oh, I he, know. He I, I know it's Clancy Brown. Like, where was he from? Uh, oh, the Kurgan would have been like pre-Russian. Okay, so they so they got an American to play a Russian. <laughs> well, there it is. But they got Connery, Fleming, United Artists. They were like, "What the fuck are you doing?" And Connery went on to play Bond. In Doctor No, nineteen sixty-two, from Russia, uh, from Russia, <laughs> from Russia with Love, nineteen sixty-three, Goldfinger, nineteen sixty-four, Thunderball, nineteen sixty-five, You Only Live Twice, nineteen sixty-seven. Now remember, we're going through a timeline, so we know there's more. So let's just take it one step at a time. So you guys obviously seen all these movies, right? Yes. Yes, at some point or another. Yeah. It is. Can you guys back up the thing about people saying Sean Connery was the best Bond? Ooh. Because Roger Moore even said Connery was Bond. He created him. Roger <laughs> Moore said this. He was the first Bond, kind of. I mean, Everybody the one on the big screen. always kind of associates their first take on one as the of the original. I mean, the movie probably got seen by a lot of people that never read, read, the, read the books, and he was their idea of it. Uh, and any time that you try to reboot or refresh anything, it always has to compare to the original. And either you like it, you don't like it, or you're okay with it, but for different reasons. Well, Same could be said for a character like the Joker. Here was the gangster, here was the anarchist, here was the punker, here was the, you know different all different takes on the same kind of character but still is there a definitive well well check this out because i guess there might have been some retconning even connery eventually grew on ian fleming that ian fleming wrote it into the books that bond was born of a scottish father andrew bond of glencoe and swiss mother monique delacroix am i i don't know if i'm saying that right delacroix from the uh, Canton de Vaud. I suck at names. But what do you guys think about that? Bond is actually Scottish. Well, I mean, I guess technically I he's British because he was born in Britain, maybe. But he comes I from have Scottish. I absolutely father. no problem with that. Because all we really know of Bond himself was his upbringing by the British government. He would gain an accent. He would gain the culture. He would do anything else. Blood and... You know, it's kind of like a a Mandalorian. You know, you can be born of anything, but the second you put on the helmet, you're Mandalorian. Same kind of principle in my mind. Well, he could have been what, anybody from anywhere. 
It's pretty but fair. What, but what about this? Are you guys happy? Are you guys glad Fleming did this? That he made it canon that, yes, Bond is of, of a Scottish father because of Connery? And in, other, in other words... I have no problem with it. Yeah, so it doesn't just, affect me anyway at all. That, so that you, means he's happy with his product. He's happy with the way it's going. He's happy that people like it, and he's willing to get behind it. I'm fine with it. Yeah, so Sean Connery's so, definitely the most famous Bond actor. Well, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. He's the most famous, but to you guys who've seen all the Bond movies, remember, I've only seen from Roger Moore upwards. To you guys, is Bond that badass that you, you understand that, oh, fuck yeah, I'd see why Fleming did this? Was Connery that badass? I think that he was right for his time. I could see the broad audience appeal. I could see, you know, the 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 ideal man that you know guys were probably relating to back back then. And I think, you know, I, I say it again, it's a product of its time, and that was kind of appropriate back then. I would do. I personally think that he was a little bit, well, incredibly too ideal. Uh, and is accurate to Ian Fleming's original conception of this character? No. Do I have any problem with Sean Connery's portrayal as Bond for those movies set in those time periods with those subject matters? Nah. I don't have a problem with it at all. Now we move on, because in the late 60s, Charles K. Feldman bought the rights to Casino Royale from Radoff, from Radoff's widow, because Radoff died. He's a guy that that bought the rights for Casino Royale at first. He then went to Eon and proposed the idea of co-producing a Bond film, Casino Royale, starring Sean Connery. And Eon were like, dude, you mean we got to split profits with you? And they, they were just like, no. So instead of making a Bond film, a non-Eon Bond film, because he knew it wouldn't work, since at this point, everybody knew Eon's the way to go. This is official Bond shit, right? Eon's like, if it's Eon, that, that's just strictly Bond. That's all you want. Everything else is bootleg. It, it It's the standard for Bond films and quality. I do not know if you guys have seen it, but he turned Casino Royale into a comedy. And this version had Orson Welles playing Le Chief. Have you guys seen this version of Casino Royale? No. Where do we find it? Uh, I'm pretty sure you could find it on streaming somewhere because, yeah. Yeah. He, he, I've he seen didn't... it on streaming somewhere. Yeah, he knew, he's like, dude, I ain't going to make up a serious Bond film because it ain't going to work. So instead, make a spoof. Make, I guess you could say, a um, a parody with actual Bond in there, but just make it into a comedy. With a Sir James Bond by Peter Sellers. And apparently he was like an older James Bond. Like, he was already out of the spy thing, so it's just him having a good time. Hey, well, uh, it's $15 on Prime. Yeah, that ain't bad. Well... Again, it, it had Orson Welles playing Le Chief, so that's got to be interesting. Holy shit. I, I clicked on the uh, the Prime link to check it out, and you know how they do like a sort of trailer in the background when you click on a movie page? Yeah. It looks like the fucking uh, the cafeteria fight from Blazing Saddles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. For a while, I thought Adam was here. <laughs> and it was made in 1967. So I don't know how close that is to Blazing Saddles, but it sounds like about the same kind of production. Yeah, this is definitely a comedy. Well, while, while this happened, on the Eon side of things, Connery was tired of playing Bond. And he was tired of all the bullshit that happened behind the scenes. He was super famous, dude. And 
I guess it happens with actors every now and then or all the time. They just get tired of this shit. He wanted to do other things. So Eon got to work on casting the next Bond. Now get this. Who Can you guess who their first choice for the next Bond to replace Sean Connery was? Was it time? not Lassenby? No. They actually auditioned 400 actors before they decided Lazenby. Wow. Who else could we have possibly had in a different universe? Roger Moore. (laughs) That was their first choice. But he was starring in The Saint. Remember The Saint that they made a movie of starring Val Kilmer? Yep. Yeah, I never knew that was a fucking TV show. I thought it was just a shitty Val Kilmer movie. I never knew it was a show until I was doing research for this. So, yes, The Saint was a spy thriller which starred Roger Moore. So he was already cut for the fucking job. And yeah, it was adapted to film in the 90s. Was it the 90s? Yeah, like late 90s with Val Kilmer. Oh, it was a shitty Mm -hmm. movie, dude. But Roger Moore actually once appeared as James Bond on a TV series called Mainly Millicent in 1964. Isn't that fucking cool? I'm surprised they let him uh, get on so much stuff. Well, they wanted Roger Moore for Bond, but he had already signed for another season of The Saint. So that was like, hey, you're shit out of luck. You got, you got to find someone else. So they auditioned 400 actors, maybe more or closer to 400. But yeah, like the rounded up was like about 400. And they finally got someone. And it's an Australian by the name of George Lazenby. So I remember you, Mike, talking about George Lazenby. Lazenby mm-hmm. came out on Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969. Which was less just a next movie and more of an actual platform for Lazenby. And I mean that because they basically, in order to get the audience who was already crazy about uh, Sean Connery to put their faith in this actor, they entrusted this movie and him with a very important story in the James Bond timeline i guess you could say and uh handed him on her majesty's secret service a part of this research i was doing today i also got it from a youtube channel named dave lee down under great channel dude this guy did does like a 40 minute bond crazy ass video talking about him and i got a lot of information from this guy so you really need to check out his channel remember it's dave lee down under dave And then L-E-E down under. So what I heard is that George Lazenby pretty much lied his ass off to get the role. He he told the casting, yeah, man, I've been in uh, a bunch of films in uh, Asia and uh, Australia and people want me. And they're like, well, shit, this guy sounds like he's, he's a fucking rising star. That's what he said. Apparently, there's nothing else saying what he said is fucking true. So. He comes out. And this is a problem because the stakes were really high. <laughs> they were betting a lot on this movie. Well, apparently on Her Majesty's Secret Service, the director of that film was like, you said you're not an actor? Like, you're an actor because apparently he could act. So I, I guess it, I guess they, they it was a, a, a gamble. They didn't know they were fucking gambling on, but apparently it came out good. But there was a problem. George Lazenby let the fame get to his head and got out of control. And dude's just enjoying the fame that he just started partying left and right. So, how do you guys feel about Her Majesty's Secret Service? 
How does that compare to the Sean Connery Bond films? Is it better? Is it worse? Because from what I understood and er after everything that I read about it, he was cosplaying Sean Connery. Because uh, I even I, I looked up so many websites and everybody was just like, yeah, he uh, it, he didn't bring nothing new to the table. He was just trying to be Sean, Sean Connery. How do you, you guys feel the same? Separating. To an extent, I don't feel like Lazenby felt comfortable in his role. Like, I, I could see a lot of, yeah, in short, yeah, because it was less Bond and more, here's this Lazenby trying to be what he already knew of an established John Connery Bond. Yeah, he didn't really bring anything new to the character, but he didn't have the charisma that Sean Connery had. When he, he didn't played. have, he did not have the charisma. And unfortunately, when it came to the more tragic elements of that story, I couldn't believe it and wasn't invested either. Like the same amount that went into this charisma went into the tragedy and it was not much. I, okay, well, aside from the movie and its plot, I, I guess in, at, the, at this point, the character really matters. The actor really matters. On, on a scale of one to five, how would you rate Her Majesty's Secret Service? You know, because at, at this point, how happy are you with the first Bond films with Connery? All of them together. Is there one you'd be like, eh, Her Majesty's, Her Majesty's Secret Service is better than that one? Probably was, Thunderball. So you think Her Majesty's Secret Service is better than Thunderball? That one just really didn't stand, stand out for me with uh, of the Sean Connery Bonds before Lazenby. I actually love Thunderball. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I have a very romantic sentiment with On Her Majesty's Secret Service because, like I said, it is the most in important installment in Bond's timeline if you consider there a timeline. The movies were made totally out of order from the books, so episodic is a term that I guess that you could use, but this was a really important event in his life. Uh, you know, and it's him and Blofeld. It's him and 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 a particular woman who he does actually for the first time genuinely fall in love with so many important things happening with the story that I love the story. I just couldn't care less for the execution. What about you, John? What do you guys follow that up with? Tell us why you didn't eh, thought it was an eh movie. Uh on Her Majesty's Secret Service? No, a Thunderball. Uh, like most of the Sean Connery ones didn't really stick out for me. Um, I'd like Goldfinger cause that was the first one that I saw, but that kind of set the standard. And then I watched it a little bit out of order from there. I think from Russia with love would probably be the next one, but something about it just didn't, you know, it, it didn't really matter to me. I guess I don't have that sort of uh connection to the story cause I, I didn't know anything deeper about it than just what was going on in the movie. All right. Well, you also said that Lazenby didn't bring anything to the table, but you also think Her Majesty's Secret Service is better than Thunderball. Damn. The movie's good. He didn't really look as hurt as he could have been at the end of that movie. And he just wasn't as charming as Sean Connery was overall. Okay. Yeah, so I just the... think his performance investment was, was lacking in what otherwise could have been a really great movie in the right hand. All right. So good plot, good movie, everything, just not Lazenby. <laughs> Just not Lazenby. I guess he really um, didn't act in a whole bunch of movies in China and Australia or whatever he said. Oh, yeah. That's when you know he was full of shit. Well, he was offered a seven-movie deal. Wow. After the release of OHMSS. But his agent told him, dude, the whole Bond thing, the whole spy thing. 
Oh, it's dying out. It's it's a thing of the past. Dude. It's it's last decades thing. So he passed on the deal, and it led him to be in just B movies, small roles, and he just eventually went back to being an unknown actor, and he regretted it big time. Eon went back to Connery, and for the time they've offered him the biggest payday for an actor for one more film, and that's Diamonds Are Forever, nineteen seventy one. So. Apparently, this movie was also a lot of people just thought eh, it's not great. It's whatever. But it's Connery back as Bond. It's an official Eon film. What do you guys think about Diamonds Are Forever? Forgettable. Yeah, oh, I don't really shit. remember anything about it. Holy shit. All right. Damn, that that's holy shit. So I because, guess all the critics I were mean, correct at the time. Yeah, I mean, it was filmed out of desperation and it kind of showed there were hokey elements about it here's blowfeld but he got a face change and there's other kinds of things and it just it felt like a desperate attempt it had outlived its welcome by then i think that they probably should have tried to find somebody else then as opposed to begging connery to come back and even he if i remember correctly was like all right more but fuck off <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because it seems it seems like 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 Connery, like the way I read everything that happened with that movie, it seemed like he just wasn't into it. He it was a paycheck. Yeah, it was like a half-assed performance, like like you know, like Harrison Ford these days. What was the paycheck that he got for coming back? Oh man, I don't know, but apparently at the time it was like Schwarzenegger Terminator Two. Like, oh, sure. it's hard to extrapolate that for today's salaries. Yeah, because remember at one time Schwarzenegger was the highest-paid actor until. I think Sean, um, uh, Kevin Costner for Waterworld. Obviously, okay. somebody else, somebody else probably took over that. But yeah, at, in mm. the '90s, it was Schwarzenegger for Terminator Two. Then Kevin Costner got the highest paycheck just to come out in Waterworld, which ended up being a flop. But you know, I love Waterworld. It's a great movie. Fuck people, fuck critics. I own it. But well, luckily for Eon, Roger Moore's contract was up with the Saints. So Eon was fast, dude. They, they were like, hey, dude, do you want to be Bond? And Roger Moore was like, let's fucking do it. So they did Live and Let Die in 1973. He was loved by the audience. And uh, and that's also the first Bond I ever saw. And, and you know, for a long time, my favorite was Moonraker and A View, a View to a Kill. How do you guys feel about Roger Moore? Because to me, I, I every time somebody says James Bond, I think Roger Moore. You would join oh. the ranks of my father, even myself. Dude, Roger Moore became my favorite James Bond once I saw all of his movies. And that's the thing about Roger Moore right there, all in a all in all in a nutshell. Like I think that he's a lot of people's favorite, but I find it hard to believe that anybody would say he was the most accurate or what they would generalize as the best. But he's just so damn likable. You see it on TV, you know you can just, you know, crack open a, a a good beer and you know enjoy the ride that's it's funny just fun well we I mean, didn't say that's funny because for a long time i thought and eh, like i thought roger moore was eh like for you know i i thought people would think he's eh because at the time i thought everybody was still riding connery's dick to the fucking moon like i thought they were just like yeah you know roger moore's shit it's always gonna be connery but it, you know, I'm actually happy reading that people loved Roger Moore. Yeah, he he, he did have quite a following. Well, he definitely he on, made it his own, and it's very difficult to say 
you know, what was better, Roger Moore's Bond versus Connery's Bond, because there are two totally opposite ends of the spectrum, but it was Roger Moore, and he was doing his thing. It showed in the movies. You could get behind them. You know, it, it wasn't Roger Moore now cosplaying as Sean Connery, as you say uh, Lazenby was attempting to do. It was just him, and they kind of did it their way. So he it made it his own. For what it was. Yeah. Well, after Diamonds Are Forever, there came out a shitload more movies. So it was The Man with a Golden Gun in 1974, The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, Moonraker in 1979, For Your Eyes Only in 1981, Octopussy in 1983, and A View to a Kill in 1985. So these are a lot of movies under one guy. If I remember correctly, it's the most movies under one guy to date. Nope, nope. Him and Connery have the same, and I'll explain later. Oh, okay. So, I'm obviously going to pick Moonraker. I love Moonraker, especially because of Jaws. So, what's your favorite, both of you, what's y'all's favorite out of the uh, Roger Moore movies? Oh, the Man with the Golden Gun. God, it's so difficult doing this. All right. If Star Trek can have its Genesis trilogy, then I can have this two-parter because I really kind of consider The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker two-parter. Call it the the Jaws trilogy. Yeah. They were back-to-back. They feature some very similar elements, and they were both, like, really great fun with tremendously wildly different set pieces. And I think that, you know, if one's on TV, I'm going to sit down and watch it. It's going to be those two or one of those two. And I have a hard time watching, popping the other DVD in. Oh, the spy who loved me had a, what was it? Agent triple X. And then that fucking Legion of doom headquarters played, played by uh, Barbara Bach of Legion of doom headquarters. Now she was just Russian. I don't know about, I don't know what that is. That a hideout that the village had. Yeah. General Golgo. Yeah. He was kind of their Russian version of M at the time. So in reality, he was, I guess you could say Bond's biggest villain, even though they never really went head-to-head for any reason. But yeah, Triple X was basically his counterpart on that side. So you want to talk about the act of seduction or possibly going back and forth, the woman for the mission. The Spy Who Loved Me has got to be the epitome of that because it's always a, a mind game back and forth between those two. Like she's trying to you know, seduce to trick him. He's trying to seduce to trick her, and and it really like whoa, now whoa, whoa. Bond what, thinks what? about wait, women wait, can wait, be wait, signed wait. on there. Wait, you you broke up right there at the end. What'd you say? I apologize. I ju- I just think that that is the epitome of Bond's attitude towards women, as far as a mission is concerned. Here's not only a woman on the opposing side of the mission, but is uh his like opposite number in the KGB. So it's basically Bond versus female Bond from the Russian side. And remember how we were talking earlier about his perspectives on women as far as the mission is concerned. That movie is the living epitome of that. And I highly recommend the watch. Wait, would she be the inspiration for what's her name? The Russian on Archer? It wasn't Natalia or Natasha? Probably, but she doesn't get turned into a robot. (laughs) Yeah, Archer's great. But also, you know, I would like to add one of the reasons or probably the main reason I like Moonraker a lot is because Jaws was a friendly, if you know what I'm saying. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll go with you by the time it all played out. I, I can never really look at him as friendly, because at the end of the day, the only reason why he turned quote-unquote good was a self-serving self-interest. You know, he finally found a reason to live, a reason to love. He realized once Bond told him this, like, you know they're only looking for perfect physical specimens, right, Jaws? You do know what he wants, right, Jaws? You do know what's going to happen to you after after uh, Drax is done with you, right, Jaws? You know, and he's finally like, oh, yeah, this is going to suck for me. And then, yeah, but he's, yeah, he's, he's so lovable, though. He is. He turns into a big teddy bear. In The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, he was supposed to be taken seriously, and he's very intimidating. But there were certain moments that played out in The Spy Who Loved Me. The desert scene when he's tearing up the van, you know, and he's about to toss this boulder as he drives off and the thing, you know, he drops it and slams on his foot. These facial expressions that he makes, he became kind of a funny character. And so they decided they wanted to double down on that. I mean, they, they Freddy Kruegered him. No shortage of, they <laughs> Freddy Kruegered him. It was somebody that was supposed, but it's like, this guy's great. We love him. We want more. It's like, you want more Jaws? We'll give you more Jaws. Wait, you want to want? I'm yeah, actually constantly going after him. I'm actually going to bring up Freddy Krueger later. Yes, while we're talking about Bond. So, you know, and I'm actually surprised you didn't bring up uh, a view to a kill. None of you with all y'all's fucking cockwriting of Christopher Walken. But We love right. Christopher Walken. I don't think anybody would say that the view to a kill was the pinnacle of his work, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely well, had some moments, I mean, though. He's got the most famous James Bond stunt scene that that they've documented, have all these documentaries. You go over James Bond stunts, they're always going to talk about Roger Moore driving around town in that half of a car, you know, jumping off the buses and setting stuff. You can't have somebody going over Bond stunts without talking about that parachute scene in The Spy Who Loved Me, which really just was what it was, but that scene when they're going through... Um, Wherever the hell the Eiffel Tower is located, it's late. Um, Paris? They're in Paris. Yeah, Paris. Yeah. We'll call it Paris. And uh, so they go through a lot of that. And it's even more fascinating that Roger Moore was actually doing the majority of that driving and those stunts in that movie while trying to chase that boat down in that car. So there, there's a lot of wonderful things that happened in A View to a Kill. But I'm not going to lie. It also has something, some of the campiest dialogue, some of the lowest stakes. Uh, but I, that movie introduced me to Walken. He's the reason why I quote-unquote ride Walken's dick to this day. If it wasn't for a view to a kill, uh, my love through, for the man throughout the lifetime would not have happened. So, yes, view to a kill does hold a very special place in my heart, but, I, it, you know, it wasn't my first. It wasn't my last. It wasn't my best. Well, well we're going to move on from the more thing just a bit, because during the time of more. Connery was asked in an interview if he would ever play Bond again. Can you guess what he said? No. Close. He said, <laughs> never. Oh. <laughs> and I hope you guys know what this is leading to. But in 1983... Never, never, never said never again. Yeah. In 1983, he played James Bond in Never Say Never Again, which is based on Thunderball. And an unofficial Bond movie, which is obviously not by Eon. So, 
In fact, I think it was an MGM production or something like that. Never once in the movie did it actually have the Bond theme anywhere. They didn't have the rights to it. It was basically a direct remake of Thunderball and kind of hard to take seriously when Ken Basinger and Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson, are in it. Yeah. So it it has. Well, here's the thing. Check this out. It's not only got Rowan Atkinson and Ken Basinger, but Max von Sydow. Yeah. You know, yeah, so they did have some acting chops in there, did they? Father Marin, off of one of my favorite movies of all time, The Exorcist. I, I forgot about that. I wouldn't have known about these other James Bond movies if uh, you didn't do that research. Well, check this out. Kevin McClory, who produced the 1965 adaptation of Thunderball by Eon, he was still part owner of the story since he, Fleming, and Jack Whittingham conceived the story. So with him having some ownership of it, he remade it to Never Say Never Again and got Connery to star in it once more. So Connery played James Bond one more time, and this leads to Sean Connery and Roger Moore both playing James Bond for a total of seven times, I think. They both have the same amount of times they played Bond. Seven times. So you saw Never Say Never Again, Mike. I have. What do you think compared to Eon Bond? <sighs> uh, there's just no way in hell that it basically wasn't an Americanized version of James Bond. It just... Well, wait, 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 wait. <sighs> also, he's supposed to be playing an older Bond, like, I guess, retired. But at the time, he's actually four years younger than Roger Moore. Everywhere <laughs> I look this up, everywhere I look this up, even Dave Lee down under... All these websites, even Quora, Reddit, he's four years younger than fucking Roger Moore, which is funny because he's supposed to be older than Bond. Isn't he only like movie. a couple of years older than uh, Harrison Ford in The Last Crusade? Uh, I guess he just does. Older people, you know, really good. He played an old guy for like 40 years, you know. Never say and, never, he's old. You know, The Rock, yeah. he's old. And he's... <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny because, remember, he said he would never play Bond again. And the movie's called Never Say Never Again, which is a whole a little jab at him, too. So what do you think about Never Say Never? Tell us about this, because I never even knew about this fucking movie existing till now. So how, what was it? And, you know, again, it's a remake of Thunderball. Is it better yeah, it than well Eon Thunderball? Yeah, it might have well been its own reboot. No, is it, oh, no it's, it's got a totally shit. different tone. It's like the movie almost feels like Las Vegas. Like you get this vibe right when you're turning on the film that it's like, like I said, very Americanized. Uh, you know, it was made by a totally different production company. It has totally different. Just it didn't feel like United Artists, Eon, Albert Broccoli, Barbara Broccoli, anything. It, it just. It could have been nowadays, you know, if some kid with a camcorder and the right drones could recreate exactly Batman Begins, you know, what would it be like? It was just literally another filming, but totally different tone. Well, and almost beat for beat, you know, but I could I couldn't say that. You know what? I don't no, want to no, say no, no. that you it's know what? I Peter think... Sellers parody, but it almost feels like its own parody. No, I think John. Because remember, this is only part one of the Bond saga we're doing. This, this is fucking long. I think John should watch Never Say Never Again, since he wasn't really too into Thunderball. And since this is a remake of Thunderball, I think, since he didn't like Thunderball, I think, and you love Thunderball, I think 
John's opinion is important. So I think by next episode, hopefully he'll watch it and tell us what he thinks because maybe he'll like this version of Thunderball. Maybe I'll look I'd for be it. interested to hear his take. Well, they got it on Prime. But check this out. By the time Octopussy came out, Roger Moore was getting tired of playing Bond. Is this like a? Well, I mean, I, I guess eventually somebody would, right? That's all they're doing. They want, you know, they're actors. They want to try other things. So, yeah, I mean, he was getting tired of playing. But Bond. I mean, there are also very physical roles. People get older. There's a lot of reasons why people would want to hang up the hat. Well, this is that's this is another thing too that you reminded me of. Roger Moore was really old. I think he was like sixty or some shit. Yeah, and. And he even he thought it was pretty gross of him being filmed with really young actresses. Tanya because, Roberts. Yeah. Because, you know, especially Bond gets Tanya the, Roberts. Yeah, because Bond gets all the girls. So he was like, yeah, this is getting uncool, guys. It's getting, <laughs> it's getting creepy. She was like still fresh out of Beastmaster, I think, at the time. Oh, I love Beastmaster. But yeah, you know, he, he, he was he was thinking this is getting pretty fucking creepy. So, hey, he's he's a gentleman. Respect, right? He's he's a fucking gentleman. Yeah. Uh, who doesn't love Roger Moore? So, A View to a Kill in 1985 was his last Bond film. And just like Connery, he played Bond in seven films. Seven of official it. films. Oh, yeah. Official. So, <laughs> sometime in the 70s, Saltzman and Broccoli, they, they, they split. They were no longer partners. So, Michael G. Wilson, who was Broccoli's stepson, took over as co-producer... And that kicked off the search for the next 007. Now, this is funny. Sam Neill actually did a screen test. I've seen but, it. But Broccoli, he was like, hard pass, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was like, no, fuck this. Because he already had someone in mind. Can you guess who that was? Timothy Dalton? No. Pierce Brosnan. Mm, who? Mm, mm, mm. Right, 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 right. Yes. So he wanted Pierce Brosnan, who he met on the, on the set. For your eyes only, his wife is Cassandra, or was Cassandra Harris, who is playing what? Liesel? 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 Oh shit! I don't know how to say that. Yeah, she was one of the Bond girls. So, like the Roger Moore, I si- like, like the Roger Moore situation with the Saint Brosnan was already committed to a show called Remington Steel, but that was canceled. Which Broccoli quickly jumped on the opportunity to ask Brosnan, "Hey, do you want to play Bond?" Brosnan was totally on board, ready to play Bond. They they did all this shit. They filmed a bunch of promotion. You know, there was, they, they filmed a bunch of shit to promote. They had a lot of stuff ready for the day that they would announce that, hey, we got the new Bond. But on that very day, they were going to announce Brosnan as a new Bond. NBC ordered a new season of Remington Steel. Damn. So... Still under contract, he had to bail on playing Bond and go back to Remington Steel, which was canceled again shortly after, like not even a month. Having lived through that time period and been through that some of the drama, if I remember correctly, I remember about this expectation for Pierce Brosnan to be announced. And if anybody else had done that, too, who was excited to see, you know, this person become Bond... I'm sure that didn't do very well for that last season that they were shooting. You know, it's like we were going to have our bond, but you had them by the short and curlies to continue the show. Well, show. Yeah, it's like you NBC kind of see had, that happening. Yeah, it's like it makes you wonder. Does does you know is there some shit between Eon and NBC in the past? Because it almost seems like it was done on purpose, if they knew about it. That is, but 
You know what? This is when Broccoli thought, hey, fuck it. Let's ask that one dude that we once asked, and he turned us down. Oh, yeah. Timmy. Timmy! It's Timothy Dalton. So, Dalton signed up for a six-year contract only if they reworked the IP. He was not into the whole, I guess, if it's proper to say, comical silliness that the Bond films have come to be known for. He he wanted to get rid of the silly Joker Freddy Krueger and wanted a Nightmare on Elm Street 1 Freddy back. He was the Jackie Earl Haley of his time. Exactly. It's just like the he wanted he wanted the remake of a Nightmare on Elm Street with him where it was it went back to being serious and actually a fucking great horror instead of yeah, we're going to go see a comedy tonight. Which one is it? No, oh, it's called The Dream Master. You know, no. He wanted serious Bond back. And, and if I remember correctly, the reason for that was that he actually knew Fleming and would talk to Fleming about this character. Yeah, because I remember you telling me that The Living Daylights and License to Kill were actually dark compared to the other films. And in these films, especially The Living Daylights, was considered by many um, to be the most violent Bond ever. Honestly, I thought The Living Daylights and License to Kill were more akin to American action movies than James Bond movies. I could see why you would say that. The production type of that time was kind of changing also. They were late 80s, so they were kind of going into a different phase of things, you know, like the 1989 Bat Summer and stuff. I think that the general way things were being filmed, I think that the production of those movies was just probably of its time. Kind of what they were doing back then. Wait, did you say 1989 Batman? Because you cut out right there. That's the only part yeah, we missed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah and and, and other pretty... movies that would come out that summer. You know, people were kind of doing dark takes on earlier IPs. And although we can probably watch 1989's Batman and say, wow, that seems kind of campy. Well, compared, I was there at 1989, so, you know, damn. You know, 1966 Batman was campy, and this shit is dark and Violent, yeah, yeah, know? exactly. Now I look at it today, and I just like I can't take this seriously. I was gonna say, I wonder if it's like the writers or something like that, because the Living Daylights and License to Kill were directed by John Glenn, who did the last three Roger Moore Bond movies, and they're like completely different movies to me. That's where I think the influence of Dalton well, himself actually came into play, though. Yeah, I was gonna say it doesn't matter if it's the director who was directing the, those movies because Dalton said, "I'll only do this shit if you change it up." Yeah, I mean, I think that the the problem with the critics of this time, having had fifteen years of Bond, going, "If you like fun, it's a popcorn flare. Go see Roger Moore's Bond." They see this, and I think that they immediately going back to wait, Ian wait, 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 original idea. Wait, and they immediately. Oh, you said, and they immediately go back. To, okay, because you cut out. Okay, they immediately go back to Ian Fleming's original idea. All right, right, and then. Uh, I think that they confused serious for mean-spirited. I would not consider Dalton's performances mean-spirited or in, in kind of a hatred of Bond or what he's doing or the character. I just think that he took it back to Ian Fleming's room. It was his intention. Like, pre-Connery conception of what well, he thought Ian Fleming's James Bond was supposed to be. And at the time, it was just too much... Of a of a shift, yeah. Because I remember you telling me that Daniel Craig and Timothy Dalton came closest to the book version of James. Yeah, Bond. I think that you could actually swap either of them out. Having just watching License to Kill again, do you think that you could throw 
Daniel Craig into that movie. Oh, yeah. And it would play out. Yeah. Now, yeah. do you think you could put Roger Moore in no. that movie <laughs> and have it play out? That's exactly I mean, what I'm talking about. That'd be a very about. different movie. I mean, unless you have. Dalton's movies were just ahead of their time. It was Back to the Future, you know. I guess you guys aren't ready for this yet, but your kids are going to love it. Well, I mean, unless you throw in laser space battles. <laughs> John, what, what did you think about Living Daylights and License to Kill? Uh, they were compared br- compared to the previous Bond shits. Well, like I said, compared to the previous Bond movies, they were a lot closer to American action movies. They were a lot more violent. They were darker. James Bond was like, uh, I don't want to say he was meaner, but like he he played a different role than you know Roger Moore or even uh, Sean Connery did. Like, would the other Bonds go elbow deep in a pit full of maggots? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. That was gross. <laughs> it's obviously, like, rubber maggots. <laughs> but, yeah, he just totally cannibal corpse gives him a skull full of maggots. Dude. He just throws a bunch of maggots in the face of the security guards. Oh, when you were talking about uh, Bond not doing any drugs, he did open up a whole bunch of cocaine in the ocean while he was right there in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. He was he's basically st- taking a cocaine bath. Yeah, he's all stabbing the packets. I mean, he's pulling out co- bricks of cocaine from the maggot fucking box, from the maggot drawer. Where do we? Where do you want me to put this cocaine at? Just put it in the maggot drawer. You're not and afraid. Coffee just won't do. You mean the maggots between af- the sharks? Yeah, like, you're not afraid the maggots are going to eat it. Nah, don't worry, dude. They don't like cocaine. <laughs> dude, I'm not going to lie, man. When I was watching, uh, when I was watching License to Kill and Bond walks, uh, you know, they 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 kind of sneaking into the warehouse and then that great white pops out from that fucking walkway i was like oh shit dude that, that part fucking scared the shit I mean, even sharky was afraid to fucking go across that i'm guessing Man, that's where they got that scene in ace ventura when he did that yeah dude yeah, i was thinking dude i was thinking about ace ventura and you know what the cannibal corpse dude, dude cannibal corpse ace ventura dude that there's a connection holy shit cannibal corpse is linked to 007 somehow a fistful of baggots yeah, f- dude, there it is. Holy shit, all the connections. But there goes the know, tagline for this podcast. Yeah, fistful of maggots. Yeah, just like fistful of dollars. But you know, I'll say I really loved you know because I have not seen License to Kill since I was a kid, and I really liked it. It was fucking fun. It was still silly I've, in some parts, but it was fun. I I, I loved the movie. And that's why I say I don't think it was mean-spirited. Earlier to John's point with John Glenn having directed the previous three, Thrown into the Living Daylights, and uh, uh, wrapping up with License to Kill for this phase, uh, I think that I can say that Living Daylights felt confusing. It felt like it was confusing on the part of John Glenn, because it, it did really feel like he was trying to find his footing. You know, beef, borscht, cake, you know, you're trying to kill me, you know, with uh, that one Russian dude and all this stuff. The con- it, it, it really felt like John Glenn was trying to figure out how to come off the change from the comedic to where it would end up. Now, I think by the time <laughs> License to Kill came out, it was fucking nailed. Yeah, like, and he got it, it but I think it took browsing. the process... Yeah, I think it took the process of the Living Daylights to get there. I could see how a lot of people could have been turned off because Living Daylights was Brosnan's first film. It's not that it was a bad story. It's not that it was this, this, that, and the other. It had a very anti- Wait, you mean Almost Dalton. weird ending. I mean, yeah, uh, Dalton. And, uh, sorry. But you could really feel the confusion, I think, in the Living Daylights. I enjoy the movie. 
but it's a totally different film, even in my eye, from License to Kill. Well, I'll tell you this and right I now. I think that that might have been the John Glenn thing, trying to figure out what kind of movie he was making. Well, I'm going to bring up a totally different topic right now. So, one thing that a lot of people think about with Bond movies is who's going to be the Bond girl this time. And out of all the Bond girls, especially from the ones I've seen, because, you know, it, it's, 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 it seems to be always be like, you know, like Playmate of the Year. It's always like the one actress that everybody's in love with that, that, that time, you know, like Denise Richards. What's it going to be from now on? Instagram models? I think, uh, no. I think Pam is the most beautiful Bond girl ever. I really fell in love with Pam. And I felt so bad at the end when Bond's making out with Katana and she leaves. She runs away and starts crying. I, I felt like shit, dude. I was like, fucking asshole. She, she's better than Katana because, you know, what's her name? Talisa Soto. She played one of the Bond girls on mm-hmm. License to Kill who played Princess Katana on Mortal Kombat, which also in License oh, to Kill shit. had Shang Tsung. Yep. So there were two characters from Mortal Kombat in License to Kill, which is cool. I kept I kept wondering why she fucking looked so familiar to me. You kept saying <laughs> yeah. Katana, and I was like, "What the fuck movie was he watching?" <laughs> yeah, no, Pam. Pam was cool, man. I love Pam. She's like my favorite Bond girl. So yeah, that that's that's that. dude. When she Wait. when she cut her hair a little bit shorter and had that like tomboy look at the end. Oh my god! Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm, she was a uh, Miss mm-hmm. Kennedy. There you go. <laughs> She has my a little secretary. thing going on. Yeah, secretary Miss Kennedy. God, and she ripped off that bottom half of her dress to pull the gun out. Oh my god! Oh yeah, to meet uh, Uncle Q. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make like, this a family reunion. Yeah, it's like Miss Kennedy. This is my uncle Q. Q. This is <laughs> this is my cousin Miss Kennedy. And Q's like, I guess we're related. <laughs> and you know, for it being a, a slightly darker action movie than the other Bonds, it still had some goofy uh, Q inventions. Like the dentonite toothpaste. <laughs> or the laser camera. <laughs> Don't use a laser. Dude, when she took the picture, even the uh, the picture on the wall yes, had, a, yes. had the x-ray. <laughs> yes, you could see the skeleton in the painting, <laughs> in the background. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh man, this is, this is fucking silly as fuck. I, well, I guess they gotta keep some of the silliness in. I was, dude, I was laughing at that part for so long. Because I remember laughing at that when I was a kid. It's even better now that I'm older because, yes, I noticed that the fucking painting of the president, you could see a skeleton. A skeleton. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I still insist. like They weren't mean-spirited. They were just different. And I think the critics at times just... Well, well, since you cut off, I'm going to take this moment to say this is where, where we're going to stop for now for the Bond saga. And then we're going to continue the rest in part two with the Timothy Dalton movies onward to Daniel Craig. But for now, we're going to talk about stuff on the side, little side notes that I had. So as I was looking all this shit up, MGM obtained the rights to the 1967 Casino Royale film, which they also received the rights to the TV episode. So since 1954, the episode was lost until a film historian, Jim... Schoenberger located it in 1981. It was thrown into a Bond marathon on TBS, but this was a black and white. The original was in color, and the VHS and TBS versions did not include the last two minutes, which were still lost. So, eventually, 
the missing footage was found, minus the last couple of seconds in the credits, and it was included in a Spy Guys and Kara Entertainment VHS release. MGM released the incomplete version of the of, uh, on the DVD version of Casino Royale 1967. So I really want to see this Casino Royale shit that was lost for a long time because that's the actual first Bond anything of Bond that was filmed. And yeah. also Moonraker was adapted for radio play in South Africa and it, it, it's been reported to air in either 1955 56, 57, or 58. There are no known copies to exist and was possibly not even authorized by Fleming or his agents. And Bob on the play was played by Bob Holness. So, also, before MGM got the rights, Fleming sold the film rights to Gregory Radoff for 6000 But no studio would back him. So, this was before the whole fucking Eon thing. So, and, and, and also... In 1958, the James Bond comic strips kicked off. This is where the more masculine and more attractive look for Bond was created by John McCluskey. He was the artist. He he didn't agree with Fleming's sketch of Bond, so he made his own. And McCluskey adapted the novels into comic strips, like Live and Let Die, From, from A View to a Kill, Diamonds Are Forever, Goldfinger, Thunderball, until 1966. Did you guys know there was a Bond comic strip? No, but I, I did not. Yeah, th- this is where the more I guess he this guy created the Connery look. So Connery might not might not have been true to the novels, but it was true to the comic strips. Do you guys want to see what the Bond in the comic strips look like? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you pictures right now, Mike. You're gonna have to check your Discord Messenger to see this. I will. So. This is real-time reaction right here, dude. Real-time reaction. Holy shit, that's fucking Sean Connery. Mm. Yep, that was before the movies. Mm. What year did that get drawn? Dude, he started doing the comic strips in 1958. Huh. I wonder if he had known Sean Connery before then. When was Connery's first film? Which was what, Dr. No? Yeah, Dr. No. 62? Yeah, 58. And that second picture I I just sent you... That's Ian Fleming's sketch of what he imagined Which Bond. looks exactly like Timothy Dalton. No kidding. So if anyone listening wants to see the McCluskey, you can just type in into Google or whatever your search search engine is. You can look in John McCluskey, J-O-H-N, and McCluskey is M-C-L-U-S-K-Y. So, yeah. I believe, or just in my opinion, but I mean, then again, seeing how the timeline went, he created the look that they adapt or that they use for Sean Connery's movies. What do you guys think? What which do y'all prefer? Now looking at those two sketches, one by the comic strip artist and the other one by actually Ian Fleming. I prefer. Call me biased, but I prefer Fleming's. <laughs> First and foremost, because it was Fleming's. I mean, but Fleming's looks nice. But it he looks also, cleaner. But remember, he fell in love with Connery, that he even made it canon that, oh, you know what? Bond's now Scottish. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, John? I think Ian Fleming's drawing looks a lot cleaner and nicer. And like uh, Mike said, it looks more like Timothy Dalton. But yeah, I like uh, McCluskey's because it's got that. McCluskey? Uh, yeah, it's got that grittier feel to it. It's got that. Um, yeah, what, what were the what was that Age of Comics called when it first came out? The, was it the Silver Age or? 
Yeah, Silver Age, Golden Age. It was like Bronze yeah. Age. I would say McCluskey looks more like this dude's seen some shit. He's done some shit, and he's ready to do some more shit. Whereas I see the second picture, and I see this guy's hiding some shit. Yeah, it looks like, Definitely. you know, it's, it looks like this guy's not, he hasn't done anything but just look intimidating. Or not even intimidating. He's just there looking like, get me a fucking martini. So that he might pass off more as a spy. You walk into a room and you see these two dudes. You're like, keep an eye on the, the one with the cigarette. <laughs> the other guy, yeah. he's a pussy. Leave him alone. <laughs> and then they both kick your ass. Yeah, exactly. So here's the thing. Did I teach you guys anything about Bond today? Oh, well, yeah. I didn't know about the uh, the Climax series for sure. Like I, I learned about the, uh, the what do you call them? The unauthorized movies or the non-Eon movies? Yeah, unauthorized. I'd lo- yeah, I'd like to it check was only out one. Never Say Never. No, oh, two. Okay. No, no, two. Casino Royale and uh, Never Say Never Again. Oh, right. The Peter Sellers thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to see the Peter Sellers one because I want to see the Pink Panther play James Bond. <laughs> Sir James Bond at that point. Sir but, James Bond. But hey, um, I just hope you guys like this because, man, I looked up a bunch of shit. And you know what? I'm not even done because we just barely just dipped our toes into, into Timothy Dalton's run. Because then we're going to follow that with Piers Brosnan, which sucks. I don't give a fuck what anyone this says. This will be quick. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and then Daniel Craig, which I've only seen two movies. I've only seen Casino Royale, which I fucking loved, and Skyfall, which was oh, fucking you've already cool. caught it. I love Skyfall, but I did not see Quantum of Solace. I did not see Spectre, and what else am I missing? Die Another Day or some shit? No, no Die Another Day was a brush. But one. I could see the uh, oh. yeah, I could see the confusion there. What's 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 the last one he did? No time to die. Oh, I was gonna say live free or die hard or some shit, <laughs> which I thought was a horrible name to begin with. Yeah, but yeah, yeah that's just one of those actors you really hate. But this is the end of part one, and we're we're gonna record the next soon, like this coming week. But in between, we're also gonna have. Are we finally gonna do Callgirl of Cthulhu? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we'll do Callgirl of Cthulhu. So y'all yeah. on your own for that one. But yeah, this is it for this episode. So this is Gabe. John and Mike and peace out for now. Night everybody. Later. <laughs> <laughs>